Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Thank you. Thank you for coming and uh, uh, appreciate the attention to the work that uh, Robert George and I uh, did on this uh, on this subject. Um, it might be helpful, I think, to lay out uh, mention three fundamental ideas that that are distinctive or that, that in this uh, book uh, that we organize the whole uh, book, the argument around. And then uh, explain uh, somewhat briefly uh, at least two of those, and then leave it to the other panels to uh, tear it all apart. So uh, the three, the three basic ideas that, that we really wanted to emphasize are first that the basic moral norm for what's right and wrong in sexual ethics, as well as in other ethics, but especially here in sexual ethics, is. Uh, are, are the, uh, the basic moral norm is the set of intrinsic personal goods. So it's the intrinsic goods of persons. When we're looking at whether an action is right or wrong, we want to look at the com compare the choice, the type of choice that is made in that action to the various intrinsic goods of the human person, including especially the good of marriage itself and the good of procreation. And so it's not just, it's not so much comparing the external action to uh, human nature viewed in a kind of uh, as a type of pattern, but it's looking at the relationship between the choice on the one hand and the human goods. Uh, are the, is that choice the kind of choice that is open to and respectful of all the intrinsic goods of the person, or does it on the contrary in some way suppress or diminish an appreciation of one or more of the intrinsic human goods? Second idea that, that uh, we emphasized was that marriage is not just a spiritual union, it is a spiritual union, but it also is a bodily union. It's a, it is, as Scripture says, although we don't rely on Scripture in this book, since it's a philosophy book, but uh, it, as I think we can show philosophically that the kind of union that marriage is, is one that is bodily, that is, the two become one in body, one organically, as well as one emotionally and spiritually. And that is, I think, an important point, and sometimes because that's lost sight of, other, uh, other problems emerge. And a third point is that marriage is intrinsically oriented to procreation, not as a mere means toward an end, uh, but as its, as its fruition. It's the kind of union that uh, in its fruition or in its natural unfolding emerges into family. And so a lot of the, a lot of the arguments, uh, especially in legal contexts, assume that the only way a community can be oriented toward a good is as a means toward an end. But I think that's a mistake. Here, marriage is both good in itself and also it, it, the sort of union that is, uh, uh, naturally unfolds into procreation, education of children, even though not every instance of it does reach that fruition. So those are three points. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, to say something about what's distinctive of marriage, and then a little bit about when, why it is a man-woman relationship, why two men or two women 
or three or more men, three or more women, why, why they can't get married, why it's uh, Sexual intercourse is, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, the, the kind of community that we're talking about, we can't just define the word, but we can see what is not really uh, disputed, that there is a special kind of union out there that is characterized in the following way. We find, in other words, instances of the following kind of union. Uh, a union of a man and a woman formed by their commitment to share their lives on all levels of their being, emotion, uh, bodily as well as emotionally and spiritually, in the kind of communion, in the kind of community that would be fulfilled by conceiving and rearing children together, even if not every instance reaches that, that, that uh, fulfillment. Now this kind of community is, is uh, you could see that this sort of comprehensive unity, bodily, emotional, and spiritual, of the sort that would be fulfilled by conceiving and rearing children together, that is a union we find. We find that kind of relationship in society. And this, we don't deny that there are other kinds of unions, but they're not the same as, what, as this one, and this one deserves the name of marriage. Now, people may, uh, to understand this, you can see the, the typical way, or very often, the, the, what motivates forming this kind of union. A man and a woman, say, uh, fall in love, they have a romantic uh, love for each other, and they long to be one with each other. They long to spend time with each other, to do things together, to build up a kind of personal communion with each other. Eventually, they long to be bodily one with each other. They, they long to have a sexual union. And that kind of total union they see is the, that, that, that sexual union, that bodily union, really needs to have, needs to be in the context of a multi-level, uh, multi-layered communion that is personal, that is emotional and spiritual, as well as bodily. And so they long to be one with their, with their beloved, and they long for a unity that includes every aspect of their being. Marriage is really the kind of union that answers that longing <coughs> that is built into romantic love. So romantic love sort of uh, uh, calls for the kind of union that would not be restricted to one level of the person or another, would include the bodily, and also the bodily union, that bodily sexual union, would shape the other dimensions of it. Not that this, union, this part of it would be may maybe the highest, but it still shapes, it was what's specific, what is specific and shapes and, and colors all of the other aspects of the union. This union, this bodily, emotional, and spiritual union of the sort that would be fulfilled by conceiving and rearing children, that kind of union is different from, say, uh, a couple who cohabits, regularly has sex together, but sees their, their having children as something extrinsic to their union. If they, they might see that union that, or having children as a burden, or they might see that uh, having children as a benefit, but in either case, if they view children as something extrinsic to their union, that makes it a different kind of relationship than the relationship I spoke of in a moment, uh, uh, a moment ago, the bodily, bodily, emotional, spiritual union 
of the kind that would be fulfilled by conceiving and rearing children together. Uh, so that cohabitation is not the same thing as marriage, and no one really argues that it is the same as marriage. Secondly, this kind of union is different from, say, a couple or several people who uh, commit to each other or uh, to form an alliance to raise children. This is more than just a marriage is more than an alliance to raise children. You can have two uh, elderly sisters uh, form an alliance to raise their nephews or nieces who have been uh, 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 who, who are orphaned because of their uh, because their parents have died. Uh, you could have uh, religious uh, celibate religious women or celibate religious men uh, form an orphanage. In other words, alliance to raise children. That's not the same thing as marriage. Marriage is this specifically distinct in that. It is a bodily as, and, and uh, emotional and spiritual union, sort of comprehensive. Of, and then that being comprehensive really uh, implicitly orients the, the, the uh, to be comprehensive, the fullness of that would be, pro, their, their bodily and emotional and spiritual union would be prolonged and extended by uh, conceiving and rearing children together. To understand a little bit more about this what's distinctive of the marital communion, and I should note again, I, I just mentioned it briefly, this is, we're looking at this philosophically, not theologically. Uh, we could see how sexual intercourse uh, 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 contributes or has a place within marriage. Uh, sexual intercourse here, and this is another point that we want to, want to make in the book uh, that's not original with us, other people make it, uh, uh, it's, Jesus makes it. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, there's some smart people around behind this, but in any case, uh, actually, uh, even Musonius Rufus and Plutarch, of ancient philosophers who were not Christians, made this point, that in sexual intercourse there is a real biological union, and, uh, and marriage, the kind of communion that we've talked about here, uh, this bodily union, they're becoming really one body, or as Jesus says, and quoting uh, Genesis, they become one flesh, is their, <coughs> their union there is a part of their total marital union. So some people tend to think of marriage as a kind of spiritual union, and then they think of maybe sexual intercourse as a bodily something over here, that is an extrinsic sign or an extrinsic symbol of the marital, the purely spiritual union. But that, that we argue, is a mistake. In sexual intercourse, the male and the female complete each other to become one, uh, organically one. The male and the female organisms, uh, whether, they, whether they're human or, or other types of animal, uh, the male and the female organisms are complete with respect to most functions. Both the, both the male and the female can walk by himself or herself, digest by themselves, uh, circulate their blood by themselves, sense by themselves, understand by themselves. In other words, these are functions that each performs by themselves. But with respect to one capacity or one function, each of them is incomplete. Uh, neither the male nor the female has a complete reproductive uh, uh, system. Neither, neither the male nor the female has a complete reproductive capacity. 
in the act of sexual intercourse, the male and the female complete each other in order, and become a single subject of a single biological function. They perform the kind of act that if other conditions outside their conduct are present, uh, will procreate. Okay? Neither of them can do that by themselves, so in sexual intercourse they complete each other to become the single subject of a single biological function, so they become biologically one. Now that become, so they literally become one body, they literally become organically one, even though they remain distinct in, in many other respects, of course. Uh, that becoming bodily one is not just a mere extrinsic sign of the union that marriage is, but it's a part of the union. It's a, the union, the marital union, is a multi-leveled or a comprehensive union, so they, they're, they are united bodily, they become one in body, as well as one in emotions and one spiritually. Or you could also say that this becoming bodily one, again, if, but this uh, only if they intend it as embodying their marriage, right? they, they, you could, the, the, a man and a woman can become one body, and if they just are just intending to get pleasure or just intending to get the experience of the union without the real union, then they don't really embody their, their union. But if they, if they have committed to each other to share their lives on all levels of their humanity, and they intend this becoming one as part of that multi-leveled union, then this bodily union embodies or concretizes their union. You could also say, as the, as both, as the tradition both the church and the secular law has said, that this act consummates their union. They're not fully married, they're not fully united as man and wife, or as husband and wife, until they become bodily one. That bodily one is what is, what, uh, is specific to this kind of union and shapes the other aspects of the union. That's important because, uh, for, for a lot of reasons, uh, not, the point is not that the bodily aspect of the union is the highest part of their union, but it is the, the, what is distinctive of this sort of union and, and shapes all of the other ones. It's hard to uh, argue for the exclusivity of marriage unless we bring that point in or, or uh, many of the other point of, uh, truths about marriage. Uh, so it's a bodily they become one in body as well as one in emotions and, and spirit. Uh, and also, the other point is that this is the kind of union that naturally unfolds into conceiving and rearing children. Uh, if they long to be one with each other, part of that oneness or the extension or the uh, logical implication of that oneness is the uh, uh, be, becoming mother and father with each other, and that this union becomes extended and prolonged throughout time. Uh, so that if they then become uh, mother and father, that that's not a new type of union. That if they've married, if they've committed to share their lives with each other, and then they become pregnant, or she becomes pregnant, 
they don't have to make a decision to, to form a new kind of union as, as cohabitors do. This is the natural unfolding, the natural prolongation of the union they've already committed themselves to. Uh, so there, there, those two points together about marriage, it's a union in, in, it's a one flesh union, or it's a union in body as well as in heart and mind, on the one hand, it's also the kind of union that would be fulfilled by conceiving and rearing children <coughs> together. That's important. That second point, to clarify that, uh, it, this means that, it's, that uh, uh, it's the sort of union that uh, it's designed to be, as it were, or in its fullness, the union of the husband and the wife is part of a larger whole. So. Uh, on the one hand, the union of the spouses is intrinsically good. It's not a mere means toward an extrinsic end. It's not just conditioned on their uh, attaining the extrinsic goal of procreation. Uh, their, their union, their bodily, emotional, and spiritual union is intrinsically good. It's not a mere means toward an end. On the other hand, it is intrinsically oriented toward procreation and education of children together, but not as an extrinsic end, but rather as its internal or intrinsic uh, fruition. It's, uh, it's, it's sort of uh, naturally designed or naturally structured to be an intrinsically good part of a larger whole. But if this or that marriage does not or is not able to reach that fruition, it is still intrinsically good. So the, so the man and the woman, the, the husband and the wife, remain married even if they find out they cannot raise children, they cannot conceive and, rear, and raise children together. Their marriage is still in itself good, it just hasn't reached that intrinsic uh, fruition. Uh, so given those two points, real quick, uh, the last point I want to make, we argue this a little bit more extensively in the book, but that it's easy to see if, the, if we get this conception. Here's a distinctive kind of union. Yes, there are same-sex unions. There are, uh, there are cohabitors that, who, who of, the, of, of different sexes. I think those are, we, we also argue any, any sexual acts outside marriage in the genuine sense, but we, we don't deny the existence of those relationships, but those relationships are specifically distinct from what has traditionally been called marriage, and this is a distinctive kind of union, so we're not begging the question by simply defining the word, we're talking, we're, we're, we're pointing to existing relationships, and here's what makes them the kind of relationship that they are, and then also you can see, well, here's why, uh, sexual acts within that context really do contribute to a good. They embody the kind of communion that they have outside that communion. If they don't have that kind of bodily, emotional, spiritual union of the sort that would be fulfilled by procreation and education together, then that act really doesn't embody their, that, their union. They might have a personal union together, but the sexual act doesn't really embody just any kind of union. If it embodies a union, it embodies a procreative type union. Uh, but you can also see that why, the, why marriage, why this kind of union uh, must be only between a man and a woman. Uh, two men can't form this kind of union. Two, uh, two women can't form this kind of union. Uh, there are two essential points about this union, two specifically distinct points. 
uh, interrelated. One is that it's a bodily, they become bodily one as well as emotionally and spiritually one. And the second one is that it's the sort of union that uh, would be fulfilled by conceiving and rearing children, even if in this or that instance it is not. But two men or two women can't form that kind of union. They can't form, they can't become one body. Okay, it's, it's not just geometrical juxtaposition. If I put my finger in someone's ear, that doesn't make us organically one, that doesn't make us biologically one. If you put a, a, a sexual organ into another orifice, it's not, doesn't make them biologically one. Only if they perform the sort of act that could procreate if, if conditions outside that act are obtained. Now, it's only if they, only if they perform the, uh, provide sort of the, the the behavioral conditions of procreation, have they become really one, uh, organically one? Have they be, have, do they have a real biological union? Uh, so if they can't, they can't, if they're two men, two women, they can't form a biological union. Uh, and so they can't form this kind of union, which is specified by it's being shaped around that biological union. Uh, secondly, they can't form the kind of union that would be fulfilled by conceiving and rearing children. Uh, 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 they can't do, perform that sort of union that has its intrinsic orientation toward, their, toward that. It has that intrinsic orientation uh, even in those instances where it doesn't reach that orientation, but it's structured uh, through and through by that intrinsic orientation. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.